Hey there. It has occurred to me that after about a half a dozen episodes, I haven't really introduced myself, probably because this podcast is somewhat of a spinoff from another one. I'm Chris Connor, the host of Life Science Marketing Radio and the owner of a custom content studio that goes by that same name. I turn conversations into content for life science companies. The podcast isn't the end product, it's the raw material. So with that out of the way, I'll just say that I am enjoying all these conversations, especially around artificial intelligence and the life sciences. So let's jump into this one right now. All right, my guest today is Sid Bhattacharya. Sid is the Director of Healthcare Analytics and Artificial Intelligence at PwC. Sid, welcome to CC Life Science. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. There's a lot of initials in, uh, in all of that, including <laughs> the CC part. Um, I'm joking that I'm carbon copying the entire industry. Um, so we're going to talk about artificial intelligence. First, kind of a broad background. This is a little bit of a primer for me. I've had a couple of these conversations, but we're going to go back a little bit, and then we'll dig into the life science part as mm -hmm. well. So to get us started, take us back as far as you, <laughs> you think is appropriate and give us some history. Yeah, happy to, happy to. And Chris, before we get rolling, just standard disclaimer, the views are my personal views. It's not reflective of PwC usual stuff. I love that. <laughs> uh, so talking about AI, and I'm glad you asked that question because people forget the context of where we came from. You know, you, I don't know if you've heard the term, the fourth industrial revolution, AI, ML, these are all very intertwined. And the term artificial intelligence, that term was was coined by someone named Marvin Minsky back in, he, he, he was from MIT. Uh, he coined it, I think, in the 50s or the 60s, I think more like the 50s. So it's not a very old term. It's been around for the last 50, 60 years. But the concept of getting a machine to do your work has been around for a long time. If you think about way back in the Industrial Revolution, where we had steam engines helping do a lot of the work, going back to the printing press and the steam engines, where the machines helped do human work, that's been around for a long time. Uh, what has happened is over the last few centuries, machines have done a great job at taking over the physical work that we do, like you know, driving a car, like driving a horse car. Now we have a car, running a printing press. We don't even think about it anymore. And where we are now moving into, once we have taken, once the machines have done a great job at helping us with the physical labor of work, what's left is the mental labor of work or the knowledge work, the way we use our brain. And that's what's happening now. We have finally come to a stage of maturity from the 1950s when Marvin Minsky coined that term. We went through several ups and downs. You know, there were AI winters, there were AI summers. And, and now we are finally, I feel, at an equilibrium where we feel that the technology has matured. Not just the technology part, uh, people are comfortable with the idea of artificial intelligence. They no longer fear it or they no longer think it's absolute Star Wars and you know it's never gonna happen. So that's a little bit of the history it's, it's automating knowledge work. We have automated, machines have helped us augment our efforts in the physical realm. Now they're help, going to be helping us augment our efforts in the knowledge realm or the mental realm. Uh, and you know, that's what it's been. Yeah, I think, and I realized when I started this podcast and started digging in a little bit, mm -hmm. I knew I was behind, 
and thinking about artificial intelligence. But when I started digging in, I realized how way behind I am and how many things I do are already artificial intelligence. Like yeah, uh, software that helps me write if I wanted to, um, movie recommendations and so on. And then this last week, right? It was, am I going to get the name right? The Dali. Yeah. Uh, thing that now you yeah. just say, make Dali. a picture of this and that. And it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, also, and the e- easiest way, Chris, the way I think about it is, as a human being, how do we do our daily jobs? Like, you know, we read something. We try to understand what we re- read in our brains. You know, we, we process that information. We write something. You know, we, if you have a thought, we can write it down. Or we can paint a picture. That's also a form of expression. Anything that we can do, um, an AI model can help augment that. Like, for example, you have NLP and ER models that can help you read through content. Just like as a human, I would read through data. You have uh, something called uh, you know, um, like natural language generation models, which can help you generate national language. Just like as a human, I would write stuff, right? So that's a cool part. You're almost finding a corollary, like a, like a you know, sidekick to our, to our mental abilities <laughs> that will help us get, get to the next level. Yeah, but the writing part, I'll just mention this because it came up. I I mentioned it in a different episode in the newsletter that there is software to help you write, which mm-hmm. I have. And I and the way I used it, because I, I always worry, like, I don't know if what it's putting down for me is accurate. But what it did help me do was make an outline. I said, I want to write about this. And it wrote out a bunch of stuff. And I go, okay, those are things I want to talk about. Now, how would I say that? Yeah. And I thought that was super helpful because yeah. getting started, yeah. as every writer knows, is the hardest part, right? Yeah. yeah. And and that's a big difference from like AI 10 years ago and AI today. Like we have always had biostatisticians working with numbers, right? Like in especially in life sciences, you had an, you had a huge team of biostatisticians who would crunch numbers and use AI techniques like logistic regression, random forest and others to make predictions, to provide projections and stuff. But they were very limited because they were only talking about numbers and only a limited set of people could understand it. But the reason why you see a huge explosion or like a buzz around AI now is the fact that the applications have moved into the realm that you and I can understand, right? Language models. People talk, everybody has a language that we talk in. Now you're having AI help us create that language, fine tune that language. So that's the other thing. That's what makes me more comfortable that, you know, we're not going to go into an AI winter anymore because the applications of AI have become so commonplace now. Everybody is using it without actually knowing about it. So that that's what makes it so cool. Yeah, so you've mentioned the AI winter twice, which um, the dark side oh. of my brain has an you know, imagination, but I don't think that's what you mean. Tell us what it is and why yeah. it has happened. Yeah, so so the AI winters, it's a, it's a, com, it's a term that people use. Uh, going back to the story of Marvin, Marvin Minsky and others, they, they coined this term artificial intelligence, and it was in academia. And true to what happens in academia, you had another set of people, uh, who you, or you had a different set of people who thought of AI differently. And it, that disconnect, just a little bit of an academic history, exists even today. You had a bunch of people who called themselves symbolists, like they deal with symbols and rules. And then you had a bunch of people who were called connectionists. 
people who deal with neural networks and who are trying to simulate how the brain does their processing. And that separation exists even today. So like, you know, all the AI uh, you know, breakthroughs over the last decade or so using deep, deep neural nets and others have been on the connectionist wing of the, of, of the AI thing. And then you have symbolists like Gary Marcus and others who believe that AI can, you can use rules to automate a lot of your work. So what happened is back in the, in the 60s and 70s, uh, the symbolists, people who thought you could write rules uh, to automate a lot of your work using expert systems or just basic computer programming, they, they got more funding. Th that was supposed to be the next big thing. And it worked for a little bit, but then in the late 80s to early 90s, it did not, it did not pan out. Like, you know, rules can only get you so far. So that's when what happened is uh, there was a drop in funding for AI. The interest in AI dropped. Uh, like even government agencies like DARPA and others stopped funding AI research because you know they thought it's not going to pan. Out. It's not going to pan out. Rules and symbols can only get you so far. So that's what's called AI winter, where there was a lull in the in the, in, in 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 developing new approaches, new models, new data sets. Uh, but you know we came back around in the early nine. I think nineteen ninety seven. Is, is when IBM Deep Blue uh, won with Gary Kasparov, and then we had Jeopardy, and we had Watson and others. That's when it picked back up. And then in 2012, uh, there's a, there was a seminal paper by someone named Jeff Hinton. He's a researcher in, uh, I think, University of Toronto in Canada, where he proved that a neural net on the connectionist wing of AI could actually perform as better or equal to a human being in recognizing images. So that was the big breakthrough, and that was like the come out moment for deep neural networks. And that's, that was back in 2012. Ever since then, the party has been on, going on. It's an ongoing party around neural networks. Ah, so it's a two different approaches, people thinking you can use rules, people thinking you can use neural nets. And you know, there was a breakup, and you know, when one of the approaches didn't pan out, there was a funding gap, that was the AI winter. And now things are back again. So I know just enough about neural networks to be dangerous, but I'm imagining based on what you said, there are rules, but in a neural, and I don't, I'm going to have you explain this, but I'm going to take a shot at it first. In the neural network, there are multiple iterations and it's going back and forth until it finally realizes, all right, we've made the adjustments on the knobs that get us yeah. closer to the answer we want and the rules-based thing must be more rigid is or yes, you tell me is. yeah absolutely absolutely so rules so think of it this way if when you're writing rules you think of the rules before you see the outputs right when you're saying one plus one you need to have that addition plus so you need to think of that's a rule right like addition is a rule so you need to think of that rule before you get to the output but when you're in neural nets, you can just tell the system that I have one, the number one, and I have another number one, and then I have the output of two. You figure out the rule of how I got to one and one making two. So that's the difference. And you can you deduce the rules using uh, the neural net deduces the rules versus you having to write it. And if you think about it in an ideal state, and it's panning out a lot these days is, uh, as your data set changes, as things change, the neural net is able to come up with new rules on what changed versus you as a human having to go and analyze and figure out what the new rules are. 
That's a big difference. So you, you don't teach the machine the rules, you teach them what the outputs are and it figures out the rules. That's the cool part of it. Yeah, and that makes total sense based on my knowledge. Now I'm going to ask, and this sort of leads to our next question, but how do you get the AI to tell you what that new rule is? Because it happens in the dark, right? You, it figures yeah. out, right? But you don't know, like, what change did it make? What? Why does it justify that decision? It is, that is what you call the black box problem of AI. And uh, people, just personally, I feel people make a big deal of it uh, on how, what's the rationale on how it came up with the rules. But in many ways, if you think about it, human decisions are not always justifiable, right? You, and, and you know, like we talk about drugs, like pharma companies coming up with drugs or life sciences companies coming up with drugs. In, in a lot of cases, you do not know the mechanism of action of how exactly a drug helped you get to an outcome, but you still take it because it helps you get to an outcome. So just some, some philosophical background, like, you know, it's different, uh, but increase that you're absolutely right that that's a black box problem of deep neural nets people are getting better at it like you know five years ago if you asked me uh, is this a problem i would say absolutely and we don't know i can't explain to you how it made a decision why uh, or why it made this decision but progressively we are seeing a lot of research in this area we are seeing actually companies coming up uh, which are trying to open the black box you know, the proverbial black box so I fully expect in the next couple of years, it'll get a lot more transparent. Uh, and we should be able to, I don't think we'll ever get to 100% being able to justify a decision, but it'll get a lot better. Fair enough. So that leads to the next question is sort of challenges around artificial intelligence and society. Are the robots taking over? <laughs> are, they, are the AIs making decisions that are fair for everyone? Tell us a little bit yeah. about that. Yeah, that's a very, very interesting, interesting question, right? Uh, and I'm glad we're having these decision discussions. Right? It, 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 this is the right time to have these discussions before we mature even further. Uh, AI inherently is not biased. You'll hear a lot about bias in AI. As humans, we are biased, and the way our bias is reflected is in the data sets, and. AI is learning from the data sets. In fact, I would make an argument that AI has actually helped highlight some of these biases because it is so objective in the data, uh, like when it does some image classification and it classifies some segments of the population differently than others, it's very clear that it's not something that, it's, it's learning because of the data and the data is the fairest representation of how human thinking is. So. Just to primer, AI is not biased. It is the humans who are biased which lead to biased data. And you know, and I think it's a learning moment for us. We can all get better at it. Uh, but fairness and responsibility in AI is a very important topic, especially when it comes to the life sciences context, right? Because the way AI is moving forward, you will start seeing a lot more AI going into the hands of patients. Like, for example, uh, if I'm if I'm taking a pill for something, can I have an app that goes along with it? That can help me. That can help me, you know, modulate my my dosage. Think about it differently, and so on. So, it is very important that we think about it cohesively and and constructively. Uh, I'm I'm, we're working with companies who are making serious investments, like life sciences companies, serious investments 
on making AI more responsible. And they all start with the data set, making sure that data is, is clean. You're able to identify bias in data before you actually build an AI model. You have an independent governing body that's trying to understand and make sure that, your date, that the models that you're building are not going to be biased or the design of your models are not going to be biased or going to lead to bias. So a lot of companies are investing in that space and it's very true in the clinical trial domain. You, know, you want to make sure you get diverse set of population. It is very true in the marketing domain. You just don't want to target a set of PIs or you just don't want to go after one single patient segment and give them wrong information. So it's, it's across the board. It's a real topic, people are talking about it and making investments, as I said, on making sure the data sets are clean, uh, making sure they have independent bodies reviewing the data, making sure that every project that you're doing in AI, people think about the risks and document it from a bias fairness point of view. That's also very important, right? Like uh, if you can document it and put it in writing and said, yes, I thought about this risk and here's how I'm gonna mitigate it, that'd be helpful. Right. And it doesn't seem like it should be that hard to do if we're aware of what possible biases there are. We ought to be able to look at how we got the data and yeah. is it representative of what we expect? The issue is it's very com like it's very difficult to understand it by just looking at the data set. We're getting better at it. Uh, so that's the challenge. You'll have to like understand the data, work with it, see the outputs and test it in real world before you can uh, before you can launch it in production. I don't know if you heard, like uh, this was a couple of years ago, Microsoft launched their new chatbot, like an AI-based chatbot. Uh, and within a couple of hours, it got trained on all sorts of garbage and it started spewing out things that were not, that are not kosher per se. <laughs> Let's just pass over here. So that's, so those are the harms, right? Those are the risks of launching something that you do not have the right controls around. Because uh, AI yeah. is, it's, it does, it's not, it's, <laughs> I hope it never happens in my lifetime. It's not sentient. It is not conscious. It is just learning from data. So if you feed it a lot of garbage data in the real world, it is going to start learning from it and start assuming that this is the right, this is the, this is the way it's things done, things are done. So that's, you, know, you have to just be careful. And uh, there, there are new professions that are coming up, like professions that did not exist. Like you have things called AI ethicists. Your bioethicists, right? These are professions that have, like at least I have never heard of an AI ethicist in the last three years. Like this is re relatively new, which is good, right? You need specialists who think about it all the time and are able to make these changes. Yeah. And just from a marketing point of view, I mean, no company wants a surprise in that area. So why wouldn't yeah. they want to find somebody who can help them out with that, right? Because yep. yep. that risk yep. is pretty significant. Yep. Um, so let's, <clears throat> excuse me, let's dig into life science companies. What are some of the ways life science are implementing artificial intelligence? Yeah, yeah. So if you look at the rest of the overall industry landscape, uh, typically healthcare and life sciences are not the most innovative companies as versus like a financial services or retail. So I, I'm only smiling because the episode that's coming out Wednesday said the exact same thing. <laughs> Well, at least we're consistent. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, one, relieved to hear it. And two, you know, um, what well, was Sev McLaughlin? And he just said, why are the finance? They're regulated. Why are they ahead of us? So go yeah, ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, like, you know, we have, we, I think about it a lot. And the only reasonable answer I could come up with is the fact that you touch patients' lives directly. 
in life sciences. So that's, that's a little bit of an additional risk. Right. Uh, so, you know, that's, that could be one of the reasons. But as I was saying, financial services, retail, they are ahead of healthcare and life sciences. Uh, but I actually, I feel healthcare and life sciences is getting up there. In the last three to five years, and especially with COVID, there has been a huge acceleration on the need for automation, on the need for AI-based solutions that can help patients, providers, physicians, and so on. Right. So that's that's a big shift. And from a life sciences perspective, there are a tremendous amount of opportunities for AI. If you start with like the research domain, uh, there's a entire industry now, like a multi-billion dollar industry around finding new molecules, new drug targets using AI. Like there are, there are multiple startups, big companies are partnering with like every single large pharma company I bet you is partnering with some startup or some group to help to, for drug discovery using AI. That's a huge, huge bucket of area. You actually are like, there's a, there's a drug that's going into, the, into clinical trials, which was invented or which was discovered using AI models. So it's real. And you know, one of the drugs that, that helped with COVID was identified using, uh, using literature search from, from using an AI model. Like a company, Scientia in the, U, in the UK, combed through research and identified a secondary use of a drug for COVID purposes. So that is a huge area. Now, if you move downstream, clinical trials, again, a huge area of opportunity for AI enabled, like helping with clinical trial design, clinical trial execution, especially with decentralized trials, virtual trials becoming a norm. AI will have a big role to play with, with helping with automation, scheduling, orchestration of data. That's a huge deal. And going down to regulatory, helping author documents, another big area where AI can help. And then the commercial side of things, I feel that's another uh, within the life sciences industry, commercial is relatively lower maturing in, when it comes to AI adoption and use, but it's going to come up pretty fast. Like like things like helping with like omnichannel marketing, help, helping with like medical call centers, helping with training for, for sales force, help augment some of your existing sales force with the right tools, recommendation engines. That would be a huge area of focus in the next few years. So throughout and you know supply chain manufacturing that's another big area one cool story and you know, i worked with a company that 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 uses ai or computer vision to look at defects on their production line so anytime there's a vial or there's a pill missing you have a computer camera that that alerts the person saying there's something wrong you might want to come and check versus a person having to manually just stare at your production line and you could miss stuff right so Things like that are are happening, and and I'm glad they are. Yeah, so many things in there. So I'm going to go backwards. The rate at which uh, machine vision can take pictures of things is phenomenal, and, and trigger yeah. an event. Like, and even in this is the example I know the best: sorting pistachios, right? <laughs> which is sort of not really a life science application, but how quickly you can, you know find and eliminate the bad ones in a massive flow of nuts. So that's that one. Um, the one before you mentioned that, well, I was going to say, I'm interested in the entire scope from drug discovery, and I'm going to throw it out right now. Those are people I want to talk to. I, I don't want any company secrets, but I want to know how people think about, like, what does it take to design a new molecule and what is the data that you're looking at whether it's protein structure or other things to mm -hmm. say, this is how we get to proposing a candidate. 
and then all the way to the clinic did an interview i think it was two years right before the pandemic with eric topol about ai in the clinic just yeah recording conversations so the doctor can look you in the eye and actually have a conversation with you yeah. rather than watch his screen or her screen, sorry, and and input data and not really pick up on your body language and all the other things that are going on. That so. is a huge application, right? Like where just, and anytime, next time you go to your doctor's office and I do this when I go to mine, the amount of time she spends typing stuff in and the amount of time she spends with me, I wish I, I wish she would give me more attention, right? Like I'm there for to see her and uh, AI can definitely help with the voice transcription, like listening to your voice and, and transcribing it. That That's a huge application area. And possibly picking up on signals in your voice yep. that the doctor isn't getting because Absolutely. they're taking yeah, notes. Yeah, yeah. Microsoft made a big acquisition. They acquired a company called Nuance in this space. And that's all Nuance does. They do, it was one of the biggest thing Nuance does. They do voice transcription and analysis of your voice to make sure that they are capturing the data the right way. So it's not just one-off, like big cloud providers like Microsoft and Amazons of the world are getting into this space too. Yeah. So that was basically a call for proposals for this podcast. If any of those topics hit people, I would love to talk to you. Um, so the other thing Seb McLaughlin talked about um, on the podcast that's coming out next week, which will have been two weeks ago when this one comes out, but of the challenge of companies getting started in AI and doing small projects and also something I know you've talked about in the past about trying to get your data perfect rather than just getting after it. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Well, that is one of my personal pet peeves, especially in large life sciences and uh, enterprises. We spend, companies tend to spend a lot of time just hoping or investing millions of dollars trying to get their data ready. And that is, that's a, that's a great approach. I don't think that's worked ever, and I don't think it'll ever work. The only way to get to like a tangible outcome is to one, identify a business problem. Like what are you trying to solve? So going back to what you said, right? Can I discover a new drug or can I comb through like 10,000 documents of, a literature, of, of literature and find out what are the key nuggets in there that'll help me design a drug? A answering a problem, a tangible problem is step one, or finding that, uh, identifying a tangible problem is step one. Once you get that going, then you just need the data for that particular problem. And this is another beauty of what has happened over the last few years is, is the advent of cloud computing. Cloud gives you the ability to section, like, you know, just create a data record for your particular business problem versus having to stand up an entire warehouse using millions of dollars, spending millions of dollars, getting all your data in one place, which never works. It has never worked. So that that's what, and you, you get best data when you talk to your users, when your users are using a system. So start small, start with the data to answer, answer a single problem, and then put it in the hands of your users. Get them, get their feedback. That's how you collect new data. And that's how the system improves over time. And that's another beauty of AI systems, right? Like they learn. If you set it up the right way, they learn based on user feedback. So the more user feedback you get, the better of a system you'll get versus trying to build something in isolation 
I, I call it waiting for data Superman, right? Like Superman to come and help me with data. That's never going to happen. Yeah, I was going to ask how you get to that point. But I mean, learning is the key word. I mean, what other, first of all, it seems to me, and tell me if I'm wrong, like you're not going to release anything that you're not confident in, but you'll never learn what it could do or how it might not be quite right yet if you don't put something in right. there. Like, and you could waste millions and still be wrong yeah. and not have collected any data along the way. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the risk of not doing something is bigger than doing something and being wrong about it. And, 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 and you know, there are nuances to it. If you're doing something that will impact a patient's life, you obviously have to be doubly, triply sure. Uh, but for majority of the applications that we are seeing in life sciences now, they don't have such a huge risk profile. Uh, this is more of a change management, getting people comfortable with using AI exercise versus actually, you know, launching a product that's in beta testing that's in that's not ready for full full fledged release. So that's that's what you have to surmount. I, I keep telling this to every company, every every leader I work with today is, technology is no longer a problem. This absolutely tech exists today. With the advent of cloud, these modern modern AI approaches, tech exists today. For the most part, I would argue data exists today. You just have to spend some time cleaning it up, standardizing it in the right format. And But the biggest aspect is getting your people comfortable with the idea of having a machine make a recommendation. Uh, that that honestly is the biggest barrier. So that's, yeah, that's, that's what I see, I see forward-looking companies working on. Yeah, and I can understand that. I mean, that's that's a reasonable reason to be caution cautious, but I think there's a there's a learning opportunity as well. Um, yeah. Okay, so what about the future? Where, what's what's going to happen next? Where? What's your vision for the next couple of years? The next couple of years, I I actually I'm very very bullish on adoption of AI over the next couple of years. There are two key trends I'll call out. One is in the data domain, right? People talk about data, and every time you start talking about AI, cloud, they talk about how data is messy. I see this problem getting solved with the use of the advent of something called synthetic data. You can create, you can create your own data sets, especially in life sciences, it's very important because uh, you, know, you don't have access to all, you, know, you always run into challenges with patient privacy, patient HIPAA compliance, you can get around all of that by using a synthetic data set. And there are companies now, there are individuals now who are creating synthetic data sets to run and create AI models. That is a huge area that will help us solve the data problem to a great extent over the next couple of years. Definitely over the next five years, I see it becoming a huge trend, synthetic data. The second thing is around scaling up AI. Like over the last few years, every company, every life sciences company I've worked with they have dabbled in AI. Some of them have done more, some of them have less, but I've not, except for maybe a couple, there haven't been a lot of success stories of deploying an AI model, deploying an AI product at scale and getting benefits from it. And that's what I see a big trend happening over the next couple of years is people are now at a stage where they feel comfortable, they understand the tech, they understand the limitations of the tech, they understand what it can do, what it cannot do, how to manage people around it, get get over their anxiety. And the next step is to scale it up. 
So those are the two big things like synthetic data, scaling up AI, in addition to all the modeling work, you know, the new approaches that's happening, like, you know, if you want to talk tech, like the, the transformer based approaches that are happening in the, in the natural language generation, vision recognition space that will completely transform the way people do, people, models are built and how we use them today. So those are exciting things, but from an enterprise adoption perspective, I would bet on synthetic data and scaling up AI on, and the technical term for that is MLOps. So how do you take machine learning and you know turn it into more of an operations point of view? So MLOps would be the big thing. All right. Can I ask you one more question about yeah, synthetic data? Like what is the path? Like how is it assembled? How do you what is the logic about how you build a data set? And then what happens? Are you training a model to then put in live? actual data or you're saying we built a model we're confident that this will work how was so that synthetic look like? data is yeah yeah so it's built first of all to create synthetic data you need people with domain expertise so for example if i'm creating a synthetic data for for a sales like a sales um, to understand say the, the the sales in like a particular geographic area like sales in pennsylvania for example who are the doctors what are the kind of things that they like to look at I would have to have the domain expertise for it. I would need to know what the sales process is, what the channels are, and what kind of data they typically look at. So that's step one. But the idea with synthetic data is you can generate synthetic data using uh, just by create by copy pasting or like duplicating an existing real world data set and changing it. That's one approach. But the other approach that's becoming more and more prominent and I'm very excited about it is something with digital twins. You can simulate, you can create a digital twin of like a sales scenario and generate data from there. So that is another exciting way of, of looking at synthetic data where you can generate synthetic data from a digital twin and then apply it to an AI model to get your predictions. So that's, that's what's happening. And then you train the model and deploy it on that. Yes, you train the model yep, and deploy like it that. on that. And then you have controls around it, right? You make sure it's working well, it's getting the right input. And then going back to the point we made about users, right? You get feedback from users, you improve over time. Treat, think of AI as like a new employee that you would hire. Like <laughs> first, for the first, if you hire someone new, you're not going to let them do their thing on their own for the first couple of months, right? You will have someone supervising them, hand-holding them, and then after a certain point, after two, three, six, whatever the time frame is, you will let them go on their own because you're confident enough. So that's how any AI product should be treated. Like a new employee, you bring them in, you need to train them, help them correct their mistakes for the first few few months or few weeks. And then at a certain point, you can let them run on their own. That is a perfect way to wrap this up. So, Sid Bhattacharya, <laughs> thank you so much. Where, um, if people want to get in touch with you or learn more about what you're doing, what's the best place to put a link in yeah, the show LinkedIn. notes? LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. I you know, share a lot of thoughts. LinkedIn the best way to find me. All right. I will put a link to your profile in the show notes. And once again, thanks so much for talking to me today. Thanks, Chris. Thanks so much. Great talking to you. I hope you're enjoying these conversations as much as I am. If you're here at the end of this episode, I'm guessing that's true. In that case, maybe you know someone else who would also enjoy them. Please share this with a couple of your colleagues. It will help me keep this going and continue to attract fascinating guests to share their expertise. 
I'll be back with another episode soon. Bye-bye.